Hello and welcome to episode one of the Warfighter podcast. Colin, good morning. Hello, Tom. How are you? Living the dream, mate. Well, I hear. Really? And t- t- tell me a bit more about the technology we're using for this podcast. Oh, thanks for asking. I thought you might. So I'm currently, th- this internet thing is happening from space. Your feedback from my last podcast was my internet connection was bad, which is true because I live in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Forest of Dean for those in the UK that may not have stumbled across it. Turns out the internet is poor and not good enough for podcasting. So since then, you've bullied me into getting Starlink. So I'm now best pals with Elon Musk. Yeah, and it, it's pretty mind blowing to think that the that this podcast actually does go via space. But yeah, if it's good enough for Ukraine, it's good enough for me. Until someone blows up the satellites, I'm going to roll with it until that happens. Beats BT Internet anyway. It, it does. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't mention them. <clears throat> so. More importantly, it's all about the podcast. And actually, the response we've had from you, the listener, has buoyed us up over the last few weeks as we've been doing our interviews. Don't want to boast. It's only been the trailer that's gone out. And, and actually, predominantly, that's gone out on LinkedIn and, and other platforms that don't get tracked via our podcast RSS feed. However, those listens that have gone through our podcast RSS feed, we're pretty big in Sweden, Colin. Did you know that? Well, it's good to see. We are on the podcast listings. We're 11th on the government listing for Sweden. We're 17th in the UK and we're 42nd within Australia. So we're we're smashing up the rankings. And this is all down to people liking and sharing our content. And if you do see posts on LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever it might be, like it and share it. You may look like a, a warfighter groupie by the end of it, but it really does help us get the word out there. And, and the more support, the faster we grow, the more value we can bring to you as the listener. Yeah, so I think probably a good time to just introduce our sponsors. And before we go into them, probably say a bit about the two sponsors that agreed to come on board. And what's more impressive about them is not necessarily just what they do, but also their attitude to this. I think they got the idea straight away. They were keen to be part mm-hmm. of the community, keen to grow the breadth of this and the communication piece. So that was really impressive. So I think it was more important for us to have sponsors with the right attitude, sort of looking to do a bit of a deep dive into some of these subjects, looking at the education piece as well. So I'm really grateful for more about their attitude than just their support. Our main sponsor, which is Improbable, and they have been around for a while developing their technology. And certainly they would say that this is a time that they're really going to come to the fore. And I think they'll definitely want to watch for the next sort of 18 months. They're just introducing their new platform for simulation. This is really about pushing the boundaries in terms of that transition more into sort of cloud-enabled technologies, something that's very much in the papers as well, sort of in the news generally about sort of metaverse and things like that. Really intriguing to see how that develops. Um, So I think we'll be covering a bit more about some of the subjects related to that later on in the series. Yeah, and I completely kind of echo what you said. Can you imagine, listener, before any of this happened, we had Colin and Tom just messaging a few, you know, a few companies saying, hi, we've got a good idea. We think it's a good idea. Do you want to get on board? Funnily enough, from the first conversation, we've, been, we've had that support and that kind of certainty that they're going to support the podcast, which has allowed us to move forward with confidence. So I will say thank you so much to, to both of you. The second sponsor is the education sponsor, and that's Conductor. I'm really excited about this sponsorship as well, because before they even sponsored us, I went on their website and you can actually use their software in the top right corner. I logged in and I was using their synthetic internet to run different crisis scenarios and, and train my responses to, to them. And I was getting sweat and pressure from what was happening. So I love the approach they've taken to their software. Essentially, it's a crisis trainer. And I can't wait. Under the kind of the ethos of the bonus episodes of the education software we're going to be bringing, uh, Colin and I will be also pitting our wits against each other using their software. So also worth one to one to follow there. 
Tom, I think it was interesting that we've arrived at this first interviewee because it fits in nicely with the name for the podcast and this word, the warfighter. Do you want to say a bit more about why that's relevant with Colonel Arnold David? Yeah. So to me, he is the embodiment of what we would see as a warfighter. This man's CV is as long as your arm, and he's done the proper warfighting that, that you and I only could read about in, in films. And then he's gone on to become a more of an intellectual and a thinker about how best we generate better warfighters. And I think there's no better man to get on to talk about the foundational concepts of warfighting. And ultimately, what we do in this industry is help to enable warfighters and make, do them, make them better at their job. And that's the crux of this podcast. Welcome, Colonel Onel David. Yes, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. You're kicking off Warfighter as a podcast. And again, we're going to start, we won't quite get into the topic just yet, but start very broad and we're going to narrow it in. But before we start, we'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves and kind of pull out all the key points from your very long and illustrious history. <laughs> long, old, and now I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm a U.S. Army colonel, an Army strategist with a mix of special operations and conventional experience with deployments to Levant, Pacific, Central Asia, Middle East, mm-hmm. like many of us. I'm the co-founder of Fight Club International, wargaming experimentation group looking to explore you know, different simulations and tools and techniques to transition into use for the government and the military. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here to have this discussion. So let's rock and roll. You're being modest. I know attached to the show notes, there's a whole bio that people are interested in learn more about you. But one other thing, you were honored in the, in the Queen's birthday honors list as well, Jubilee honors list, which is, I think, is a, is a huge achievement for American. Yes, mate. Yeah, it's massive. Uh, it was quite a surprise to get something like that in the UK as an American and, and for, for it to be Her Majesty right before her passing. I mean, it makes it even mm-hmm. more special, the Platinum mm-hmm. Jubilee. So really appreciate that distinction from the Chief of General Staff. And uh, no, what an achievement. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to try and set the foundations for this chat. It's the first podcast, as we said. So I want to make sure that people understand the concept of warfighter, what we define, again, amongst us as a warfighter, and then why it's important for us as industry and defense to be focusing on doing that work and supporting the warfighter. So, Colonel, could you kind of elaborate on your perspective of a warfighter? And is there a description for a warfighter? Sure, yeah. I'll give it a go. Um, you know, great name for your podcast. I love it. You know, so what's a warfighter? I think a lot of it's in the name itself. There's one thing it's definitely not is a warmonger. Mm-hmm. So not to be confused with somebody that's just wanting war. I, I think a warfighter is a professional committed to excellence and being good at fighting in war across Mm -hmm. all its domains and dimensions. I mean, there is this timeless paradox that in order to preserve peace, we have to be very good at war Mm -hmm. to deter it from happening. But if war comes, you know, these warfighters who are committed to fighting and winning, they're always ready to fight and win. And are we defining the, you know, warfighters only the people that fix bayonets and charge a position or can that be, you know, the logisticians, the the electrical engineers, just the, the pointy end? Yeah, great point, Tom. I mean, a warfighter is almost like, you know, you have heard of the warrior ethos, and I think the warfighter ethos is is similar indeed in that it, it should embody the spirit of just being good at what you do. And all these things, logistics, signals, all, all those different things contribute to, you know, warfighting. And so I think mm-hmm. it is that spirit of like trying to be a, a professional, excellent in your job. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to say you're a warfighter because I think you are. I mean, if you're helping mm-hmm. contribute to the fight in some way, then yeah, you're, you're a warfighter. Yeah, I mean, I'm no expert as to what's happening in the Ukraine right now, but you know, logistics, communication, and obviously the bravery of people on the front line, but they're all becoming a perfect mix to be allowing the Ukrainians to achieve the advances that we've seen. Yeah, it's that will to fight. And I think that to embody this, the ethos of this warfighter spirit, I think it's rather important. 
across, you know, your formations at, at all levels so that we can make sure that we win and that everyone's firing in all cylinders. This is a training simulation podcast. So I suppose what I want to be able to tease out now is from your perspective, your experience, it is, it is vast, not just within the war fighting and door kicking bit area, but it's a tra- strategy and the simulation war gaming training elements. What I want to do is tease from you are your kind of key points or at least reflections about what has, what has historically made good war fighters and how and what we can be doing in the future to focus on that. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, I, th- I think about this quite often, and I'm here now in the Joint Advanced Warfighting School where we're learning mm-hmm. about strategy and war. And what does it mean to be a warfighter or a professional? And I think, I mean, there's three things that I would, I think I would tee up right off the bat is um, number one, self-study. You know, you, you got to read and study and history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, T. Lawrence once said, you know, he's a hero of mine from your parts. Um, <laughs> with 2,000 years of examples behind us, we have no excuse when fighting for not fighting well. And I think that's mm-hmm. really important because there's not much new in the sun. It might, history might not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. There's no excuse for not re- repeating mistakes from the past. And so we should study. That's really interesting because, you know, I'm looking at, again, sorry to keep on mentioning Ukraine here, but I'm looking at Ukraine and thinking this is different. It's a different kind of warfare. We saw recently with the news with the boat drone attack on the fleet, the Russian fleet. And that's different. That's never been done before. So is it the importance that we, we take the, the themes and the commonalities from across history, but not focus on the detail? Like you know, an example of that is the Maginot line. You know, we, of course, you know, World War One will never happen again. Look at this amazing Maginot line. And then we just went around it. Oh, we didn't. The Germans did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, great point. I mean, that's why when you're gaming and exercise your imagination, mm-hmm. you're not anchoring in the in history, but you're using it to guide you. I think the gaming will tease out what is the art of the possible and what mm-hmm. could be done. And I think that's really important because it's kind of hard to do. Was it Thomas Schelling? You know, it's hard to imagine something that's not possible without, you know, it's just kind of hard to just imagine something mm-hmm. out of nowhere, right? So the games and simulations kind of spark up the creativity required to see what could happen, you know, some kind of spontaneity on concepts or methods. So I think that is rather important. And that's why you need simulation in wargaming. Maybe that's a good point to kick off because I've always, I've not really heard it from you before, but with your work with Fight Club, can you just explain to people that never heard of it what that is? And it's probably not what they may think of first. Yeah, that's right. It's not a bunch of middle-aged men punching each other in the the face. No, No, so Fight Club is rather, it was a surprise and and it wasn't planned to be what it is now. I mean, initially we thought we'd go to the mess and play some games and and learn different wargaming techniques because to be honest, like I didn't think I knew enough about wargaming Mm -hmm. and I was trying to study other methods. And with the COVID hitting, we went online and we found like a group of people of all walks of life, neurodiverse. We were very inclusive right from the beginning. And now Mm -hmm. we have this massive network of of people that are gaming and studying games and war games and virtual reality and all these different technologies and and simulations. And so that we're experimenting with them in this community, talking about it, interacting about it, playing games. And then we're big advocates for trying to introduce these methods and techniques into government use. I'm a strong believer in that it shouldn't be a 10-year program because a lot of these things you hear (laughs) from these organizations like, oh, the 10-year master program, like that'll never arrive. Like let's take what we have right that exists today, these technologies and put them to use now and really just put them in the hands of your soldiers and warfighters because they're mm-hmm. going to surprise you with what they can do with them. There's tools that we were playing with at Fight Club that I didn't think they can be used a certain way and people are using them and learning things or testing things in new ways. And so yeah. it's not just about the playing better games and using different tools. It's about better thinking about being more effective at fighting. And I think that the Fight Club's done quite a bit of that. And now we're in different countries, you know, Turkey, Fight Club Turkey, uh, Now France lately, we got France standing up uh, a Fight Club chapter. I think that's one point to note when I got engaged with Fight Club years ago now, is that it's not a 
a military organization necessarily in terms of the traditional rank structure. There's a lieutenants that are helping to run everything. It doesn't matter who you are and what rank you are and what experience you've got. It's about promoting those ideas and bringing those ideas to the fore, which is hard to achieve in a military environment. No, you're absolutely right, mate. I mean, we, I think the Fight Club, if I've done anything right, it's empowering younger leaders, boys and girls, to have a voice, to have a sounding board, and then helping provide them resource, like getting their ideas to the table, because there is no rank in Fight Club. That was one of the, one of the rules. You know, you hear us hear the rules of Fight Club, like, no, don't talk about Fight Club. Number two, don't talk about Fight Club. So we adjusted the rules, so definitely Google our Fight Club International rules. They're much different now, and I think they're really, we put a lot of effort into that, because so, we always got the social media, don't talk about Fight Club, and, and so we have our own rules now. But yeah, you're right, mate. I mean, I think that the empowerment has been rather valuable for us not being in the military. Because what you, a lot of us are in the military government. Less, the last thing we want is more hierarchy when we do something on the side. And so, like I said, it's allowed us to be surprised with what can be done with these tools and what kind of games we can start to play with and explore for use. But we really need it. I mean, I think there's a bit of staleness in some of our organizations and mm-hmm. we have to be quickly, you know, quite honest with ourselves. Is it good enough? And if it isn't, what are you as a leader doing about it? Cause like, mm-hmm. if you know, it's, it's easy, the easy thing to do is go, Oh yeah, this is how we do it. And we can be dogmatic and say, this is the way it's been done all the time. Like I hear, you know, when I was in NATO, yeah, this is how it is. We need to challenge that. We need to start to question the things that undergird those processes and doctrine and see if mm-hmm. it's still valid or not, if it's still relevant. And most often it hasn't been. And so this is mm-hmm. what's great about us playing around, exploring stuff and getting the younger generation involved because they're so digitally savvy and smart because they know how to put these things together. So just to give us a flavor in a typical session, what are the sort of applications or games that you're using? They're a bit different to say a more common simulation, I take it? I started to learn a language in lingo where we have these constructive simulations, one of them being combat mission. And mm-hmm. at the tactical level for company commanders and below, I mean, it's a brilliant tool for you to get repeated practice, whether it's actions on the objective, movement to contact, urban fighting. This tool allows you to control a battle group or and below. I mean, normally it's going to take a while if you do a battle group, but if you did a company or even a recce element, we're asking ourselves questions like, well, what would this look like? And I think a good example of this, Colin, is at the NATO Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, a, a Royal Marine major, we were playing the manual game, which is still helpful and useful, right, as a wrap for what we were doing as a core, how we're going to fight these divisions. What's a manual game, sorry? So a manual game, you know, the the traditional counters on a map, you know, Mm -hmm. it's everyone's sitting around a table. Physical tabletop. Physical tabletop Mm -hmm. game. Simulation. Correct. We were doing that, but, you know, there's a lot of abstractions with those kinds of games, right? So it's hard to Mm -hmm. like to see what does that look like. So this Royal Marine Major is like, hey, let me take this recce fight, which looks like a mismatch, and put that in a combat mission. So he went home, loaded the maps in, in, in this place in Poland where we were training, you know, just, 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 just because we were training this area. And he loaded up the town, put in the urban fight, put in the recce forces. And he found like it was a mismatch that we we're going to get our ass kicked. And so we had to adjust and reappropriate resources and different types of capabilities. So hmm. some post-aviation support and some other stuff to that recce elements so that it would survive when it made contact and it wouldn't just get wiped out too fast. It, would, it can make contact with the enemy, find it, fix it, and do its job of like bringing on the rest of the, the division to the fight. I think that's a good example of how we, we're using these tools and they can help you think. Because in the military, a lot of the wargaming and sim, there's this misnomer that, oh, it's what you do to compare courses of action. Mm-hmm. That's wargaming. And it's got a negative stigma. And that's all it is. And I, it could be so much more, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I know we all three of us believe that. But we're trying to show more leaders that if you're doing this all the time, you get speed, and you get a better understanning of how to fight because like you start to understand what's on possible what's on the blue side what's on the red side and that's very important and I imagine there's a lot of discussion that goes on during these events as well and talking of tactics and then you're starting to develop and stimulate the right parts of your brain to start thinking about 
how I personally execute on it. And the other thing that I've come across when going to work with military units, especially the more elite end of the spectrum, the pointy end, call anything a game or building on something on a, on a gaming platform or whatever it might be, that does have instantly will have negative connotations with I'm not doing my day-to-day jobs. What, what value am I going to have with that? Have you had a similar experience? Yeah, I think we, we're all trying to overcome that because, I mean, admittedly, like early days, you know, you think when you see people pull out the, the map and the, the dice and stuff, you think it's like entertainment or it's a board game. Mm. But no, this is serious business because the math, the science that goes behind these games, whether they're manual, traditional types on the table or if they're, they're simulations where you have physics-based simulations now where you can war game, you can simulate multi-domain cross-domain maneuver with different capabilities. And I think you know, we have to do that because, I mean, why, mm. why would you not do that if you can, right? If you can get better at, at trying. So I'm going to give you the final answer because, you know, the, the final audit of battle will determine whether it's going to work or not. But hell, I mean, you can do it a thousand times. Why wouldn't you do that before fighting for real? And we have to get over the stigma of like, it's just a game. And it's not serious. There's definitely utility in the use of these different tools. You touched on something earlier there and you were starting to talk about failing and the ability to do a lot of repetition. Is that something that you think that maybe in conventional training we're missing an ability to fail? Oh, that's brilliant, mate. Yeah. I mean, obviously we go to these training centers and they're world-class training centers, national training center in, in California and the joint readiness training center in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And you don't go there wanting to suck or get your ass kicked because <laughs> it's so important that you perform well, you know, for career purposes, but also so that you're, you're seen as a competent leader going over, mm-hmm. you know, getting ready to go overseas if that's what you're doing. And you're afraid to fail. And so mm-hmm. I think what that does sometimes, it makes you operate very by the book. And then you're just trying to, you're not taking risk. You're not going to be very risky. And I think there's a balance to be struck there where if, you know, don't wait to that once in three years time to do that training environment, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have a safe to fail environment where you can test your ideas over and over and see what may or may not work prior to that time that you go out for the world-class training area. And so I think we're getting to a point now where our leaders are looking for ways to to do this. And I think this is where the tools now, the simulations are so advanced that they can do this all the time. I mean, they can be playing it at home or they can come into the office and just have a a couple scrimmages or sessions fighting it out. And I think that's really important that that, that they do that. They have a safe-to-fail environment. You know, clearly we're a victim of our own culture because we we start out of basic training and it's all about SOPs, meeting the standard. This is drummed into us. But Colin, can you you elaborate what an SOP is, please, for those that might not know? Yeah, sorry, standard operating procedures or or whatever your process is. And hey, what is the military good at? Military is good at standardization. But there comes a point, as you rightly say, where we've got to then start to innovate, start to go off the script. Do you see the wargaming and maybe some of the things you're doing in Fight Club as that component? So it's, it's almost a foil to that. Here's your standardization, but here's your chance to try alternatives, try that decision-making process. Yeah, absolutely, Colin. I mean, I'll even take it a step further. I mean, we're not just fighting with military people. What we've done lately is we're fighting with guys that wargame and plays different games all the time. And it's mm-hmm. amazing how good they are at fighting. And it's not just about being good at, this is not hand-eye coordination stuff. I mean, these are turn style. They're not real time. You're just going at it, slugging out. There's a lot of thinking and intellectual component in these different simulations. And you're starting to see these civilians that have never been trained fighting Mm. in ways that you never imagined. Mm. And our military guys are learning from this. And they're saying, man, Mm. I never would have thought of doing that. And Mm -hmm. so I think that this community within Fight Club is bringing that diversity together to 
to explore different ways of fighting and thinking. And so it's really powerful. Yeah. In my head, I'm just smiling to myself thinking that there's a general overwatching a, an advanced contact or a deliberate attack of an infantry platoon. I'd love someone be platoon commander decides to take his remote control RV car, strap a smoke grenade to it and drive it as a decoy, completely off doctoring, but going, I just thought this was a good idea. You know, maybe it went well, maybe it went horribly wrong. But at the end of it, you know, that person become a, get, get applauded for being different, for being dynamic in their approach and that being the expectation from our junior commanders that they should be thinking outside the box not just lieutenant so-and-so did a good standard advance to contact in arduous conditions well done should we be doing more absolutely i mean that's that human dynamic is that you want to foster that ingenuity within your ranks so that people are thinking i mean we've got to outthink and outfight our adversaries and the outthinking part is really hard and so it's like you said colin it's too easy to stick to your standard operating procedures and and cling to doctrine, but that goes out the window when you start to fight, right? Once you leave the line of departure, mm. those things have, were useful, but it's the real professionals, your war fighters, are the ones that can deviate from those 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 guidelines to find the way to create advantage, and that is what strategy is, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, strategy is happening at all levels, and people are like, "Oh, that strategy is at this higher level." Well, no, I mean. Mm-hmm. You want your leaders to be strategic-minded. And I think that's what they're trying to do is create advantage on the ground, to take whatever resources they have, be mm-hmm. creative, and create advantage so that they can overwhelm an opponent because we don't want to fight fair. Like I said, if, if you want to win, you're always looking for that upper hand. You're always looking yeah. for angles. And I think the gaming really produces that, right? It produces adaptability. And you're not going to get the exact answer. People are looking for the final answer from different war games or tools that you're not going to get it. That's not what they exist for. It'll help you think about it, help, help tee up these discussions. But what it does more than anything else it produces mental agility in your warfighters so that they can think on their feet. And then when they get you know punched in the face, as Mike Tyson says, they know how to react and respond in kind so that they're not just stuck there, shocked. They can get hit and keep maneuvering to find advantage and win. Going to your point, no plan survives first contact. And I, I remember one of the early pieces we were taught about planning is, okay, what happens if that, you know, the so what, what happens if that happens? So you almost have to have your B, C and D plans, your alternative course of action. And how do you get that agility? Because I guess in some of these live exercises, there isn't huge time for that. You know, there isn't a huge time to practice the you know, 50 times that same section attack or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so, as we get older here, and I have some friends that are becoming brigade commanders, and we're thinking back to our times when we were younger. I mean, we're, we come to the point now where we believe that it's less about plans, it's more about playbooks. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll unpack that, you know, because I know it's a, it might be an American expression, but... <laughs> American football, you have multiple plays you can run with your team, right, to try to get down the field. And if you see a quarterback and just look at the defense and go, oh, they're too strong on the right side or, or something, I know that side's kind of weak or that guy's going to stack it better than this, this guy. Well, you call an audible and you run a different play right on the spot so that when you do see the character of the war that you find yourself within, you can make a decision to go, hey, this is going to work. I need to make a different play. Right now, I worry that within NATO, where I was at in the arc, in the NATO Alley Rap Reaction Corps and, and elsewhere is that we become so fixed and fall in love with our plans that you're going to fight your plan and not mm-hmm. fight the enemy. And you're not going to fight within the environment that you find yourself in. And that's going to be deadly because then you're going to potentially lose soldiers you don't need to lose if you can think on your feet. And I think that's mm-hmm. why I've been pushing so hard with like, like you all with the simulations and wargaming because it'll produce better thinkers and make them adaptable. And, and again, it's more about playbooks than it is plans mm-hmm. so that you can understand. As long as you understand your commander's higher intent and the purpose of what you're there for, your mission, you can have disciplined initiative to not do what your commander might have told you because you say, hey, that didn't work out. I was on the ground. I had to go around the hill. 
not just take mm. the hill or whatever the, the situation might be. The terrain wasn't playing out the way we thought. It's a lot more muddier over there. So mm-hmm. versus just continue to do what the plan says, you need guys that can make decisions on the ground. And where do you see this going? Do you see this being adopted as sort of uh, sitting side by side with existing training structures? Or is this something that we bounce back to every time? How do you see this? Let's say in the future, this gets adopted as part of standard training development. Where would you see it sitting? All of our units, and I'm sure this is no different from the US to the UK to everywhere else, is that in our worst nations, like there's so many things to, to be done. You have to do all this different training. It's important. But I think it's gotten so much, it's become so burdensome on our commanders and our units that they're doing a lot less fighting. They're doing a lot less of their core business. And I think what I see happening is that because you don't have to go out to the field as often, you can still, with resources tight, ammunition is expensive. You know, you, when you do start putting rounds down range, you want to make sure that those rounds count and that you're actually training the way you'd want to train. I see people using these tools, virtual reality, simulations, more games, way more often so that, you know, yeah. if they want to be good at fighting, there's only one way to get good at fighting. It's to fight, right? It's to start, it's to practice, repeated practice against a thinking adversary. And so that they're fighting each other mm-hmm. because iron sharpens iron. So there's, you can fight the computer, but then that'll get you a certain degree of, you know, competence. But I think what we really want to do is have people, that's why it's called Fight Club, is like, there was a purpose in calling it that, is that we want people fighting a thinking opponent so that iron sharpens iron, people get better and sharper. And, uh, and it's kind of fun because it's competitive. We're all kind of competitive. So it's kind of good to <laughs> talk trash to each other mm. and uh, say, so you, you know, it, it, it's been fun. I really want this technology, these these board games, these simulation platforms to be forward mounted at kind of company or platoon level. So they're not scared of the technology. And what I mean by scared, I mean, it's probably not a f- fair description, but it, well, they're not, you know, they only use it historically. They've only used it, say, once every three months when they've had to go through a certain training cycle. Whereas actually, I want the technology to be, to be there on demand. So when they have a bit of downtime, you know, an hour or two, they go, right, we've got enough time. Let's get ourselves into the simulation suite and let's do a few sets and reps. And that becomes, as soon as it achieves that breakthrough and it just becomes, you know, it's, it's used to sharpen themselves on a regular basis, that's when simulation and training, that's when it's really going to start, I think, making that tangible difference. No, absolutely, mate. And I think one thing that leaders have to do is when you're at these units is like, you have to think about the specific use case in the software that you're trying to integrate, because mm-hmm. there isn't nothing harder than trying to change culture mm-hmm. within the organization, right? You can come, it's easy to come in and just do the same things that the last guy's doing. And, and many people do that because, you know, you don't want to stir things up. But if you realize that there's a problem at hand and there's a deficit in your training profile, and you can take a tool and you can integrate it, like you said, if I wouldn't force it as much as saying everyone's going to do this in my brigade because mm. that'd be a waste of money, right? I would mm. say, you know, success breeds success. You know, so like if you have someone successful, then that becomes a story and you go, hey, share that story. And that's what it, within the Fight Club community, we've got loads of stories now where someone did this this type of wargaming exercise or simulation exercise for a couple of days. They're sharing these post-exercise reports, these PXRs on the Slack or on emails with each other. And they're learning from each other. And that's, Mm -hmm. we're trying to cultivate that kind of environment because not one person knows best how to integrate all these things. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm I'm really against these 10 year masterful sim environment. The technology is changing too fast for that. Those 10 year Mm -hmm. programs will never arrive. (laughs) They'll be overrun of cost. And uh, I've seen them briefed all the time at these conferences, like the 10 year master plan. What about right now? What about our, what if we have to fight this year? Where are we giving our soldiers right now? And I hope that leaders ask themselves that because it's easy to do the 10-year plan and throw all these conceptual PowerPoint slides together in brief lines pointing to objectives. Mm -hmm. But 
we got to be better than that. Our soldiers deserve better. Mm -hmm. So I am absolutely loving this. We have definitely gone off piece. That was the mission that we gave ourselves. Let's just go in a direction that we find the passion. And I think we've done that. However, circling back round, Arnel, those three points you mentioned at the top, is there more to cover? Have we covered them? No, I mean, you know, it's funny, off piece. That's one of the words I had to learn when I was over there. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Getting off the ski lane there, off piece. Okay. <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, that's such a wonderful discussion here. And I, I love this stuff like you guys do. And no, I think we covered it all. I mean, the one, number one was like self-study, you know, make sure you read and, and study and, and look at history, but not use it to anchor in, but to help mm -hmm. it guide future action. And then two, conditioning, you know, not just physical fitness, because, you know, like reps and sets, if you want to atrophy your muscles, you got to do reps and sets, right? Well, same with your, your mental agility and your mental fitness. You got to do reps and sets. How can you do that? You know, simulations and war games right so like mm -hmm. the conditioning and then repeated practice not just against a, a you know ai and computer that you can eventually beat it's fighting a thinking opponent i think those are the three things that if if you want to preserve and build upon a warfighter mentality i think those three things would be a good start and i'm sure there's plenty of other things that take a crack at but i, I think we covered it off really well mm. i think that very beautifully sums up the end of this interview Thank <laughs> I know there's plenty there, isn't there? <laughs> that, is a, that is a mic drop right there. Colonel Onel David, thank you so much for your time. Is there any, anything you'd like to promote or say before we finish? No, I'll just leave everybody with a quote that I like from Flavius Josephus, a Romano-Jewish warfighter from back in the day. You know, he once said that their drills are bloodless battles and their battles are bloody drills. I mean, I think that sums up very well what we're trying to <laughs> articulate here for this approach for being a warfighter in modern war is a uh, repeated practice. Be good at what you do. It's a commitment to excellence. It's a way of life. Very good. Well said. Thank you again, Colonel Arnold David. Brilliant. Thank you again. So the quality of guests is purely based on the guests that get recommended to us or people that we can get access to. So if you're listening to this and you know of somebody or you'd like to suggest yourself, please do either email us on the contact at warfighterpodcast.com Go onto our website and leave us that voicemail, which again, we're quite looking forward to playing some of those or any other way you'd like to approach us like on LinkedIn. We really would value any recommendations that you could provide. Yeah, absolutely. I think we want to hear from all those nooks and crannies in the simulation world. You know, wherever you may be, this isn't two British blokes talking about UK stuff. This needs to be wider than that. So that's great. Look, without further delay, let's introduce Andy Forks, who's going to give us our regular bulletin about what's going on in the simulation training industry. So here we go. We've unleashed our tame journalist, Andy Fawkes. Welcome. Great to have you here. It's actually fantastic to be here. I'm really happy that uh, you've asked us to join this podcast. As you may know, I'm the special correspondent for military simulation training. Other people may know me for other roles, <laughs> but I'm here in that role. And we're going to report on the news every two weeks and maybe more frequently, depending on what's going on. And we are, you know, obviously we're an international podcast and you do cover the international news. But if you could give us a little background on yourself, as this is the first episode, it'd be great for people to get to know you as they'll be hearing you in their ears every two weeks. That's a scary thought, Tom. But uh, yeah, so those who don't know me, I'm an engineer by background, but I accidentally got involved in training and simulation. Over 20 years ago, I was in the Ministry of Defence and I was asked to take on a role. I didn't know much about what it was about, but uh, it's so-called synthetic environments. Over the next decade or so, I stayed in the MOD and looked after simulation policy. And some of you may know me through 
the NATO Modeling and Simulation Group, which I Mm -hmm. proudly shared in the mid-noughties. That was a great time. And then I left in 2012. I didn't really have a huge plan. And I would say drifted, but I've gone from the next (laughs) interesting job to the next, which I think is always good advice for anyone, really. So yeah, various companies. I've worked with Colin over that time, and you've still asked me to join this uh, podcast. Uh, (laughs) Over the last three years, I have been writing and doing a bit of editing for Hallsdale Group, who are kindly sponsoring this. I will be going through the MS&T News. That's Military Simulation and Training News, uh, (laughs) which we release every week. And we've also obviously got a website. And so we'll be going through that news. And I may more broadly, if I think there's anything else of interest. Great to have you, Andy. Well, I'm looking forward to this, firstly, because it's going to be great to keep me up to speed with everything that's going on. So I've got a personal interest. We don't have to read anymore. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Andy reads the news for you. Yes. (laughs) Right then, Uh, let's get get into it. So give us your first bit of juicy news. I'm going to say it's juicy. I think it's interesting. There's a US company called Vertra. Um, Mm -hmm. who have been providing training and simulation systems principally for firearms training for nearly 30 years, since 1993. Anyway, they've been working, I believe, with a French company called 4D Views, Mm -hmm. who are doing volumetric capturing of not just the military, but Virtua have got a license with this company. And they've created a whole new area that you can sort of go in and be volumetrically captured. This is important because I think, obviously, we can see the sort of avatars that we might have in gaming and simulations military simulations we know what our avatars look like and then of course there's other types of training where you might maybe film people and then mm-hmm. replay the film but in a way they're trying to go through the middle so they'll capture not just one person but multiple people mm-hmm. in this sort of volumetric area and then mm-hmm. be able to reuse that in simulations I think this is important because in the future, I think there'll be more of this where we actually have very highly accurate representations of ourselves in these virtual worlds. So I just I understand that technology. So you walk into this room, you stand there in a T-pose, I, I guess, and they press scan. And then through the wonders of technology, it spits out, you know, is it a fully rigged character and a, and a high poly? Is it What's the output from it? Yeah, that, that is the idea that you have a very realistic avatar. Uh, well, very representative of yourself and with other people. So what they say would get beyond the uncanny valley so that you are, can be then reused as your mm-hmm. as bodies, but not just yourself, but of sort of generic soldiers who are doing things in this dome. I quite like that. I mean, I guess, and I haven't seen the pricing, but I guess it would be significantly cheaper than going to a three model provider, say, create me 15 models of X, Y, and Z in current kit and equipment. I imagine it's quicker and cheaper. Otherwise, it yeah, wouldn't make sense. Yeah, and, and I believe they are going to rent it out. I think it's important to be accountable here. My understanding with that technology is that, I mean, I, I have seen that technology. I know that universities have rigs that do a similar thing and have touted that for a number of years. So what's so different about these guys? Uh, well, I, I happened to have seen this a few weeks ago, actually. It's, uh-huh. quite, it's quite interesting <laughs> because it takes out a lot of the manual process that we normally have to do and basically uses computers to crunch the data overnight. So instead of taking something, something like 30 days to do the mocap, photogrammetry, all the rest of it, it's all procedurally done. So really quite impressive. I mean, it's interesting we look at, hey, you've got one route, which is the pure virtual simulation, another route, which is effectively this mocap. Mm-hmm. There's pros and cons for both, but one gives you a more than good enough approach. But I mean, the, the downside is you have to re-record it every time, whereas in the virtual world, you can just sort of control the avatars. It's interesting, though. I think I've seen meta-reality 
Reality Labs with an Apple iPhone, you can actually scan your mm. face anyway, not your whole body, but scan your face and create very realistic avatars of yourself. I think that's just going to get more and more. So mm-hmm. what that means for training, I don't know. In the past, I've been involved in experiments and people don't always recognize each other in a virtual world. That's maybe another old episode about <laughs> how you recognize people in virtual worlds. Yeah, I would suggest during a military activity, when you've got cam cream on, helmet, it's dawn, wherever it might be, it is actually also very hard to recognize people anyway, because you're all covered in cam cream and stuff. But I do think the next step of that extended reality is all about facial capture and emotions and the ability mm. to see things moving because you're right. You don't want to look to your left and be able to hear somebody talking to you, but then not know which of the three faces that are avatars that are looking at you is the one that actually the one that's actually talking yeah. to you. So I definitely see that as a direction. I'm probably virtuous saying it's not just the face, it's the whole body, yeah. which I think actually, in fact, I understand that recreating legs, uh, the way people walk is actually the most difficult thing in animation. Mm. But uh, Let's move on, Andy. What's next? Only two weeks ago, that story came out in military simulation training. And of course, I think anyone in defence, certainly in the UK, would have seen the story about it looked like RAF pilots were going straight from the front line straight Mm -hmm. into China and and training Chinese pilots. And obviously, certainly in the UK, that caused quite a lot of concern amongst politicians and so forth, people acting to to stop this flow of ex-Royal Air Force pilots. But I think this is, in terms of the way it came out, they did sound very negative situation. I know it's caused quite a lot of discussion in forums like LinkedIn, whether the military, what they should or shouldn't do after they... Mm -hmm leave the service. So I think it's a really important story that apparently these pilots were being offered over a quarter of a million dollars. So there's whether they were all being offered that we don't know, but there's, there's obviously <laughs> a lot of money and tempting. Of course, in the last few days, certainly the BBC have kind of re-reported this story and whether the whole story came from this example, but apparently the pilots were at the Test Flying Academy of South Africa. Now, there are test pilot schools across the whole world. So whether this is just uh, one example, or an exa- sorry, example of many, we don't know. And apparently they have been in contact with the MOD for many years, saying this is what we're doing. And so the MOD, apparently, Ministry of Defence, was fully aware whether there's a new statement from the MOD coming out. We don't know. Anyway, the, the test schools claims it was strictly unclassified. Actually, however, my own thoughts on this is also maybe some of these RF pilots are learning things from the Chinese that could be useful to the RAF. There's a possibility. <laughs> so I... <laughs> And of course, it's almost certain that the RAF is not alone in this. So there's Mm -hmm. ex-military pilots across the whole world. So uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see how this story goes and whether other nations are going to take a similar view or perhaps a similar hard line. But I think it also shows that things can quite move quite quickly in this in military simulation of training. So I don't know how you gents as ex-military feel about this one. It's an uncomfortable thing. So my understanding is that they were working for a commercial organisation in South Africa and they were then subcontracted, I imagine, or something like that out to China to go and support training. So these guys are left military a long time ago. They're working for a company in South Africa. Again, this is paraphrasing what I understand you've just explained to me. And now they find themselves in China earning lots of money training unclassified, inverted commas, techniques. You know, on the face of it, if that's the case, and it's not illegal in the UK for that at the moment, then who are we to stop them? But also, who are we to know what information was communicated during the time out there? Of course, everyone wants to try and impress the people they're training. We don't know how many pilots went to China, but what we do know is it seems that they were they were at this uh, the Test Flying Academy. And as I say, there are other academies across the whole world. I mean, it's interesting. It's something that uh, has we've been doing for years, certainly in the UK, sort of training aircrew 
whether that's countries in North Africa or, or the rest of the world, but I guess it's whatever His Majesty's government deem it appropriate these days. But, yeah, that's a good you know. point. I mean, there's another story in MS&T. In Australia, there's the first two submariners who have been trained on a commander's course actually in Australia was before they were training in the, in the UK and the Netherlands. So that was just, a, yeah, it goes on across the whole world. Maybe, and maybe this is a subject for a future podcast. I think it's a very interesting one. At what, cool. what stage do pilots feel... Are they or any military able to go and do training? You know, and and maybe after a while, anyway, people lose their con- their currency anyway in terms of what's the current tactical situation anyway. So yeah, I thought it was a very interesting topic that one. Keep an eye on it and let us know how it develops. It'd be interesting to follow up on that. Absolutely, Tom. Yeah, great. So another story I think, which is less MS and T, but I, I think in the last week, apparently over the last year, three trillion dollars have been lost over the what are they called, the seven big technical companies. That's their market capitalization. And famously, Mark Zuckerberg has lost $11 billion of his fortune, but he's not alone. Mm. Some of the others have lost, even Elon Musk mm. has lost a lot of money as well. So yeah, there's obviously quite a lot of uh, retrenchment probably is going to happen there. Oh, we don't we don't know. But I think what is interesting for our listeners is whether any of these companies will start to sort of perhaps withdraw some of some of the areas that they're interested in this area, or in fact they'll go in harder into areas like government and defence. I certainly read something this week about how venture capitalists are now more keen to look at sort of government funded related companies it's really a more steady income piece rather than a growth story while the sort of traditional tech stocks are having a problem so i think that can be a good thing and a bad thing but if you look at the history of the internet and darpanet and things like that a lot of these technologies that they're looking for really were really did emerge from that investment early on by defense agencies so it could be a good story if we see more investment in the sort of the, the certainly the government side not the military yeah, unfortunately for me, being on the older side, I've seen the digital sector go up and down a few times. So we'll see. The slope is fundamentally uh, upwards. But obviously, since the pandemic, there's been a correction as people have decided they want to meet in person again, etc. Yeah, as much as we'd like to think that defence keeps at the cutting edge of technology, I think that even if there's a plateau of the upwards tick of technology throughout defence, I think all it is is it allows defence to, to take a breath and maybe, you know, even slightly catch up, which again, isn't probably a bad thing for defence. I mean, it actually comes to mind, uh, ITSEC and other events. It'll be interesting to see, uh, I know some of the big tech companies are going to be at ITSEC. I, um, let me just stop you there. Just before, again, I'm very keen to be the arbiter of, of don't, let's not use phrases that people don't, maybe not understand. So can you first explain what ITSEC is to, to people who may not have heard what it is? So yes, Tom, what is ITSEC? So it's the largest, it certainly claims be and it's certainly from the times I've been there the largest military simulation and training in-person event in the world and it's held in Orlando which I imagine attracts quite a few people there but crucially mm-hmm. it's got industry but also the military and academia there so it brings suppliers and customers together and together with with a conference I don't know what the latest figures were what they will be this year but there was I, I don't know it was easy over 15,000 people uh, go to these events so yeah and it'll be really important to see on the show floor some of these technology giants hardware and software what they're up and what their views are on perhaps uh, slip in their market capitalization yeah i've got to say i've been for a couple of years recently first time you go it's pretty overwhelming to explore and go around it but it is also pretty awe-inspiring that what some of these technologies are. The thing that I, I find exciting, obviously the networking event, but the opportunity to go to the, the new startup companies and explore around the newer technologies. So mm. I highly recommend it for anyone that's new to the space. If you can get yourself out to Orlando, Florida for a few days to enjoy that, then it's very much worth it. 
So we're coming to the end of this first new segment. I've really enjoyed it. I'd like to always, there's always more content to talk about than we've probably got. So Andy, if you could suggest a couple of articles that we can't talk about going into too much detail that you think were very interesting from this week, and then we can put it in the show notes. I think there's a couple, uh, very briefly, there's an article from Dim Jones, who's our Europe editor about Mm -hmm. RAF Cranwell, where Royal Air Force pilots do all their their initial training in the United Kingdom. I think it's interesting to all our listeners around the world because he's been able to contrast because he he joined there in 66, 1966, and now he's saying what's changed and what hasn't. I think that's Mm. interesting to all pilots across the world. The other story, well, sorry, article that's in our newsletter last week was from our guest authors, Dr. Kay Stanny and Claire Hughes from Design Interactive. They have written a guest article about limiting cyber sickness in extended reality. Now, I'm sure we've all got views on cyber sickness in extended reality, but uh, please have a look at that article. And I'm sure it's something that's we might talk about in future. It's a huge area. It's something which we've dealt with for years in the aviation simulation area, and it continues to plague us these days because I talk to people almost every week and that's their main concern with the these virtual technologies. So yeah, I think definitely one for to look in depth in the future. Oh, I've got strong views on that. And if you could put us in touch with the authors, that'd be amazing. We're now getting to the end. I'd like to suggest that if anyone has any news articles or any content they want us to talk about during this news bulletin, please send it to contact at warfighterpodcast.com or just look in the show notes and send us information there. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for putting your time aside. I think this is a perfect segment uh, for, for the podcast and I can't wait to continue to hear your voice going forward. Thanks, Great Andy. Stuff. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Colin. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, thank you, Andy. And I'm going to be looking forward to the regular updates on news and what's going on in the events. So I'm really pleased with that piece. So we talked about the community, but Tom, be interesting to hear from you a bit more about how our listeners can support what we're trying to do. So this is the social media bit, isn't it? Look, I want to keep it nice and simple. If you listen to on a podcast, press the subscribe button. However, the crux of the community, as this is professional, as I said on the trailer, is that I want people on, on LinkedIn. So search for the Warfighter podcast, uh, click follow there. Every episode will be listed there. And if we can get people engaging there, providing thoughts and feedback, that will allow us to do a better job ultimately, therefore make a more interesting, engaging podcast. Yeah, look, and that's important to us. It's not, it's making sure that what we put on this is of interest to the community. Maybe there's things we've missed. Maybe there's some good ideas out there. I'd like to think we have all the good ideas, but that's, that's clearly not. <laughs> we have a monopoly case. on good ideas. Yeah. Monopoly that's on good one. ideas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like this podcast. I told you it was a great idea. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week. This is going to evolve and I can't wait to see where it goes. So thanks for your time, Colin. Anything left to add from your side? No, until next time. Cheers. Cheers.